This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hello, I'm Richard Lloyd Parry, and I'm the author of The School Beneath the Wave, a piece about the extraordinary natural disaster that struck Northeast Japan in March 2011 when a massive undersea earthquake set off a tsunami which slammed into the coast over a hundred mile stretch, causing destruction and death on a, a huge scale. Now, of course, it was news all over the world, but internationally, the natural disaster was eclipsed to some extent by the man-made disaster that followed that, the nuclear meltdown, which everyone remembers. But to some extent, it overwhelmed coverage of the tsunami. And it remains the case that so far, although some people died indirectly, no one has directly died as a result of radiation from Fukushima Daiichi, whereas 18,500 people died in the tsunami at a stroke, crushed or drowned by this immense, unstoppable wave. The story you're about to hear is one of how this inexorable natural disaster intersected with human failure and incompetence. And it's a story of a school, Okawa Primary School, which suffered a unique tragedy. Only 75 of the 18,500 people who died were school children, but 74 of them, all but one, were at a single school at Okawa Elementary School under the care of their teachers. And in the weeks after the disaster, this became clear to the parents of those children who died and they began to question why this had happened. The questions they asked received very unsatisfactory answers and the parents' grief and devastation soon took on edge of frustration and anger that developed into a campaign, even into a legal struggle. But it was a long and anguished fight before they found out the truth of what had happened and why their children had died. In the end, the parents were not passive in the face of their grief. They took that grief and they turned it into something really very positive. They took on these incompetent authorities who'd failed their children and then, to a great extent, lied about it. And they took up cudgels against them, they took it to court, and they won a victory that will, I think in the long end, work to make Japan and its schools safer in the future. 
Welcome to The Guardian Long Read, showcasing the best long-form journalism covering culture, politics and new thinking. For the text version of this and all our long reads, go to theguardian.com forward slash longread. The School Beneath the Wave, The Unimaginable Tragedy of Japan's Tsunami by Richard Lloyd Perry. major earthquake of magnitude 7.9 hitting Japan. The meteorological agency issued a tsunami warning that could be as high as six meters along Japan's Pacific coast. The earthquake that struck Japan on Friday the 11th of March 2011 was the fourth most powerful in the history of seismology. It knocked the earth six and a half inches off its axis. It moved Japan four meters closer to America. In the tsunami that followed, more than 18,000 people were killed. At its peak, the water was 40 metres high. Half a million people were driven out of their homes. Three reactors in the Fukushima Daiichi power station melted down, spilling their radioactivity across the countryside, the world's worst nuclear accident since Chernobyl. The earthquake and tsunami caused more than $210 billion worth of damage, making it the most costly natural disaster ever. In Japan's disaster, there are too many dead to have a proper funeral. Pain and anxiety proliferated in ways that are still difficult to measure, even among people remote from the destructive events. Farmers, suddenly unable to sell their produce, killed themselves. Blameless workers in electricity companies found themselves the object of abuse and discrimination. A generalized dread took hold, the fear of an invisible poison spread through air, through water, even, it was said, through mother's milk. Those who work in zones of war and disaster acquire after a time the knack of detachment. This is professional necessity. No doctor, aid worker or reporter can do his job if he is crushed by the spectacle of death and suffering. The trick is to preserve compassion without bearing each individual tragedy as your own. And as a foreign correspondent and sometime war reporter, I had mastered this technique. I knew the facts of what had happened, and I knew they were appalling. But at my core, I was not appalled. All at once, something we could only have imagined was upon us, and we could still only imagine it, the journalist Philip Gurevich once wrote. That is what fascinates me most in existence, the peculiar necessity of imagining what is, in fact, real. The events that constituted the disaster were so diverse and so vast in their implications that I never felt that I was doing the story justice. In the weeks afterwards, I felt wonder, pity and sadness. But for much of the time I experienced a numb detachment and the troubling sense of having completely missed the point. It was quite late on, the summer after the tsunami, when I heard about a small community on the coast that had suffered an exceptional tragedy. Its name was Okawa. It lay in a forgotten fold of Japan, below hills and among rice fields. In the years that followed, I encountered many survivors and stories of the tsunami, but it was to Okawa that I returned time and again. And it was there, at the school, that I eventually became able to imagine. Okawa Elementary School was more than 200 miles north of Tokyo, in a village called Kamaya, which stands on the bank of a great river, the Kitakami, two miles inland of the point where it flows into the Pacific Ocean. In ancient times, this region of Japan known as Tohoku 
was a notorious frontier realm of barbarians, goblins and bitter cold. Even today it remains a remote, marginal, faintly melancholy place, the symbol of a rural tradition that for city dwellers is no more than a folk memory. One of the pupils at Okawa Elementary, Tetsuya Tadano, was a stocky boy of eleven with close-cropped hair and an air of mild, amused mischief. Every morning he made the twenty-minute walk from his house to school with his nine-year-old sister, Mina, along the embankment of the river. On the day of the earthquake, it was the fortieth birthday of their mother, Shiroe. A small celebration was planned at home that evening, but otherwise it was an unremarkable Friday afternoon. At lunchtime, the children rode on unicycles in the courtyard and foraged for four-leafed clovers. It was cold, and a piercing wind came off the river. Tetsuya and his friends stood in a row with their hands in their pockets and turned their backs on it to keep the chill off their faces. Lessons at Okawa Elementary School finished at 2.30pm. At 2.45pm, the school bus was waiting in the car park with its engine running. A few of the younger pupils had already climbed in, but most of the children were still in their classrooms, finishing up the last school business of the week. A minute later, the sixth-year class were singing Happy Birthday to one of their number, a girl named Mano. It was in the middle of this song that the earthquake struck. The room was shaking very slowly from side to side, said Somasato, one of the sixth-year boys. They weren't small, fast shakes. It felt gigantic. The teachers were running up and down, saying, hold on to your desks. In the library, a man named Shinichi Suzuki was waiting for his son, who was in the sick room, having been taken ill earlier in the day. He watched as the water in the school fish tank slopped over its sides in waves. In Tetsuya's class, the fifth-year were getting ready to go home for the day. When the earthquake first hit, we all took cover under our desks, he said. As the shaking got stronger, everyone was saying things like, Whoa, this is big. You OK? When it stopped, the teacher said right away, Follow me outside. So we all put on our helmets and went out. The school building was evacuated with exemplary speed. Scarcely five minutes after they had been crouching under their desks, the children were in the playground, lined up by class, wearing the hard plastic helmets that were stored in each child's locker. Much later, the city authorities would compile a minute-by-minute -minute log of the events of that afternoon, based on interviews with surviving witnesses. It conveys something of the atmosphere after a big earthquake, of excitement and resignation, light-heartedness and dread. Child. Everyone sat down and the register was taken. The lower-grade girls were crying, and Miss Shirota and Miss Connor were stroking their heads and saying, It's fine. One of the sixth-grade boys was saying, I wonder if my game console at home is OK. Child. It must have been a kind of earthquake sickness because there were little kids throwing up. Child. My friend said, I wonder if there'll be a tsunami. The alarm of the younger children was renewed by repeated jolting aftershocks. At 2.49pm, while the vibrations of the motherquake were still jangling outwards across northern and eastern Japan, the meteorological agency issued a warning. A six-metre-high tsunami was expected. Everyone on the coast of northeast Japan should evacuate to higher ground. There were more aftershocks at 3.03pm, 3.06 and at 3.12. At 3.14pm, the Meteorological Agency updated its warning. 
the tsunami was expected to come in at a height of 10 metres. The teachers in the playground formed a huddle beneath the cherry trees and engaged in a discussion in low voices. Like many Japanese institutions, the operations of Okawa Elementary School were governed by a manual. The education plan, as it was called, covered everything from ethical principles to the protocol for graduation ceremonies. One section was devoted to emergencies, including fire, flood and epidemic. The education plan was based on a national template which was adjusted according to the circumstances of each school. Immediately after the earthquake in the villages by the sea, teachers and children were following instructions to ascend up steep paths and cliff steps. At Okawa, the deputy headmaster, Toshia Ishizaka, had been responsible for revising the education plan, but he had left unchanged the generic wording of the template. As Ishizaka stood in the playground, he found only these vague words to puzzle over. Primary evacuation place, school grounds. Secondary evacuation place in case of tsunami, vacant land near school or park, etc. The vagueness of this language was unhelpful. The reference to park, etc. made little sense out here in the countryside where there were fields and hills but no parks as such. As for vacant land, there was an abundance of that. The question was, where? There was an obvious place of safety. The school was immediately in front of a forested hill, 220 metres high at its highest point. Until a few years ago, the children had gone up there as part of their science lessons to cultivate a patch of shiitake mushrooms. This was a climb that the smallest among the children could have easily managed. Within five minutes, the time it had taken them to evacuate their classrooms, the entire school could have ascended high above sea level, beyond the reach of any conceivable tsunami. One senior teacher, Junji Endo, later recalled one brief conversation with Ishizaka after checking for stragglers inside the school. I asked... What should we do? Should we run to the hill? I was told that it was impossible with the shaking. But one of the survivors from the sixth year recalled a much more dramatic intervention. Endo, she said, had emerged from the school calling out loudly, To the hill! The hill! Run to the hill! His alarm was picked up by one of the students, Daisuke Kono, and his friend, Yuki Sato, who made their own appeals to their sixth year teacher, Takashi Sasaki. We should climb the hill, sir. If we stay here, the ground might split open and swallow us up. We'll die if we stay here. The boys began to run in the direction of the mushroom patch. But Endo was overruled. The boys were ordered to come back and shut up, and they returned obediently to their class. Two distinct groups of people were beginning to gather at the school. The first were parents and grandparents arriving by car and on foot to pick up children. The second were local people from the village, to complicate matters further, Okawa Elementary was itself designated an official place of evacuation for the village of Kamaya, and a drastic difference of opinion verging at times on open conflict was manifesting itself in the attitudes of the two groups. The parents, by and large, wanted to get their children out and away as soon as possible. From the Education Board's log, Child, my mum came to pick me up and we told Mr Takashi that I was going home. We were told, it's dangerous to go home now, so better stay in the school. Parent. I told Mr. Takashi, the radio says that there's a 10-meter tsunami coming. I said, run up the hill and pointed to the hill. I was told, calm down, ma'am. The local people, by and large, wanted to stay put. 
Most of the parents who came to the school were full-time mothers and housewives. Most of the villagers offering their opinions were retired, elderly and male. It was another enactment of the ancient dialogue, its lines written centuries ago between the entreating voices of women and the oblivious, overbearing dismissiveness of old men. When the earthquake struck, Toshinobu Oikawa, a grey-suited man in his late fifties who worked in the local branch of the Ishinomaki town government, was in his office not far from Okawa Elementary School. Within five minutes, the first tsunami warning was received from the meteorological agency. Within 15 minutes, Oikawa and five of his colleagues were climbing into three cars mounted with rooftop speakers of their own and setting out to deliver the warning in person. They were driving through the outer margins of Kamaya when Oikawa became aware of something extraordinary taking place two miles ahead of them, at the point where the sea met the land. The place was Matsubara, the spit of fields and sand where a ribbon of pine forest grew alongside the beach. The trees were a century old. Many of them were around 20 metres high. And now, as Oikawa watched, the sea was overwhelming them, swallowing up their pointed green peaks and tearing up the forest in a frothing surge. I could see the white of the wave foaming over the top of the trees, he said. It was coming down over them like a waterfall and there were cars coming in the other direction, and the drivers were shouting at us, the tsunami is coming, get out, get out. So immediately we made a U-turn and went back the way we'd come. Within seconds, they were driving through Kamaya again. More aftershocks were taking place, but it was as if the entire village had fallen under a spell. One of Oikawa's colleagues was shouting through the car's loudspeaker, a super tsunami has reached Matsubara, evacuate, evacuate to higher ground. There were seven or eight people standing around the street chatting, Oikawa remembered. They paid us no attention. I saw the patrol car parked in front of the village police box. But the policeman wasn't passing on the warning, and he wasn't trying to escape either. We passed the school. We were driving fast, we didn't stop, and we couldn't clearly see the playground. But they must have heard our message too. The school bus was just standing there. In Kamaya, people were doing what they always did after an earthquake, tidying up. Among them was a farmer in his 60s named Waichi Nagano, who lived in a big house out in the fields. I heard all the warnings, he said. There was the loudspeaker car from the town hall going up and down saying, Super tsunami imminent, evacuate, evacuate. There were a lot of sirens too. Everyone in the village must have heard them, but we didn't take it seriously. In the playground, the children were becoming restless. A mood of bored resignation had established itself. It was cold. People shared blankets and hand warmers. There was no sense of anything much happening or that anything was likely to happen very soon. At 3.25pm, Oikawa and the three loudspeaker vans drove past, blaring their desperate warning. In the school playground, the teachers were preparing to burn wood in oil drums to keep the children warm. At 3.30pm, an elderly man named Kazuo Takahashi fled his home next to the river. He too had ignored the warnings until he became abruptly aware of the sea streaming over the embankment beside his house. It seemed to be coming from below the earth as well as across it. Metal manhole covers in the road were being lifted upwards by rising water. Mud was oozing up between the cracks that the earthquake had opened in the road. 
Takahashi directed his car towards the closest place of evacuation, the hill behind the school. On the main street of Kamaya, he saw friends and acquaintances standing and chatting. He rolled down his window and called to them, There's a tsunami coming! Get out! He passed his cousin and his wife and delivered the same warning. They waved, smiled and ignored him. Takahashi parked his car next to the school. As he climbed out and made for the hill, he became aware of a large number of children issuing forth from the school in a hurry. Among them was Tetsuya Tadano, who had remained in the playground with his class. Mr Ishizaka, the deputy head, was absent from the playground. He reappeared suddenly. A tsunami seems to be coming, he called. Quickly, we're going to the traffic island. Get into line and don't run. Tetsuya and his friend Daisuke Kono were at the front of the group. The traffic island was less than 400 metres away, just outside the village, at the point where the road met the new Kitakami Great Bridge. It was as he approached this junction that he saw a black mass of water rushing along the main road ahead of him. Barely a minute had passed since he had left the playground. He was conscious of a roaring sound and a sheet of white spray above the black. It was streaming in from the river, the direction in which the children had been ordered to move. Some of those at the front of the line froze in the face of the wave. Others, including Tetsuya and Daisuke, turned at once and ran back the way they had come. The rest of the children were continuing to hurry towards the main road. The little ones towards the back were visibly puzzled by the sight of the older children pelting in the opposite direction. Soon Tetsuya and Daisuke found themselves at the foot of the hill, at the steepest and most thickly forested section of the slope. At some point, Tetsuya became aware that Daisuke had fallen, and he tried and failed to pull his friend up. Then Tetsuya was scrambling up the hill. As he did so, he looked back over his shoulder and saw the darkness of the tsunami rising behind him. Soon it was at his feet, his calves, his buttocks, his back. It felt like the huge force of gravity when it hit me, he said. It was as if someone with great strength was pushing. I couldn't breathe. I was struggling for breath. He became aware of a rock and a tree and found himself trapped between them with the water rising about him. Then darkness overcame him. Thanks for listening to The Guardian Long Read. We'll be back after this. It starts the same way. Can I tell you a secret? It would start off with a random girl and just say, Hey, hun, I'm going to tell you some secret now. Please don't mention it to anybody. But it quickly escalates. It just spread like a wildfire. I still sleep with clubs next to my bed. I didn't know how far this was going to go. People seldom show their true selves online. But one man... He's taken it much further. I was terrified. Who is the cyberstalker behind these messages? He actually said to me, good luck proving it's me. And why is he sending them? Because he became more and more isolated, he just went within himself even further. Do you punish someone for acting out whatever is going on in their mind that we don't understand? And if I could just turn back the clock, from The Guardian, I'm Shirin Kale, and this is Can I Tell You a Secret? 
a story about obsession, fear, and the lives we lead online. Listen to all episodes now. Search for Can I Tell You a Secret? wherever you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The audio long read is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash audiolongread today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash audiolongread. Welcome back to The Guardian Long Read. Everyone who experienced the tsunami saw, heard and smelled something subtly different. Much depended upon where you were and the obstacles that the water had to overcome to reach you. Some described a waterfall cascading over seawall and embankment. For others, it was a fast-rising flood between houses, deceptively slight at first, tugging trippingly at the feet and ankles, but quickly sucking and battering at legs and chests and shoulders. In colour, it was described as brown, grey, black, white. The one thing it did not resemble in the least was a conventional ocean wave, the wave from the famous woodblock print by Hokusai, blue-green and cresting elegantly in tentacles of foam. The tsunami was a thing of a different order, darker, stranger, massively more powerful and violent, without kindness or cruelty, beauty or ugliness, wholly alien. It was the sea coming onto land, the ocean itself picking up its feet and charging at you with a roar in its throat. It stank of brine, mud and seaweed. Most disturbing of all were the sounds it generated as it collided with and digested the stuff of the human world, the crunch and squeal of wooden concrete, metal and tile. 
In places, a mysterious dust billowed above it, like the cloud of pulverised matter that floats above a demolished building. It was as if neighbourhoods, villages, whole towns were being placed inside the jaws of a giant compressor and crushed. From the hillside that overlooked Kamaya, where they had narrowly escaped to safety, Waichi Nagano and his wife Hideko could see the whole scene spread out below them as the water swept in pulsing surges over the embankment and across the village and the fields. It was a huge black mountain of water which came on all at once and destroyed the houses, he said. It was like a solid thing. And there was this strange sound, difficult to describe. It wasn't like the sound of the sea. It was more like the roaring of the earth mixed with a kind of crumpling, groaning noise, which was the houses breaking up. There was another, fainter noise. It was the voices of children, said Hideko. They were crying out, help, help. On the hill above, where he had half climbed, half floated to safety, Kazuo Takahashi heard them too. I heard children, he said. But the water was swirling round, there was the crunching sound of the wave and the rubble, and their voices became weaker and weaker. Tetsuya Tadano came too on the hill, blinded by mud and with the roar of the tsunami in his ears. His limbs were immobilised by spars of debris and by something else, something wriggling and alive which was shifting its weight on top of him. It was Kohai Takahashi, Tetsuya's friend and fifth-year classmate. Kohai's life had been saved by a household refrigerator. It had floated past with its door open as he thrashed in the water, and he had squirmed into it, ridden it like a boat, and been dumped by it on his schoolmate's back. Help! I'm underneath you! Tetsuya cried. Kohai tugged him free. Standing on the steep slope, the two boys beheld the scene below. Beyond Kamaya had been a succession of hamlets, and beyond them fields, low hills, the swaying curve of the river and finally the Pacific Ocean. After the tsunami, the village, the hamlets, the fields and everything else between here and the sea was gone. Tetsuya's first thought was that he and his friend were already dead. He took the raging water to be the River of Three Crossings, the Japanese equivalent of the River Styx. Those who have led good lives cross the river safely by bridge. Evildoers must take their chances in the dragon-ridden waters. Innocent children, being neither sinful nor virtuous, rely on a kindly Buddha to make their passage and to protect them from the depredations of hags and demons. I thought I died, Tetsuya said. Dead. The river of three crossings. But then there was the new Kitakami Great Bridge and the traffic island, and so I thought this might be Kamaya after all. The water, which had receded, began to surge up the hill again. The two boys tottered up the slope. Tetsuya's face was black and bruised. In the churn of the tsunami, the ill-fitting plastic helmet that he wore had twisted on its strap and dug brutally against his eyes. His vision was affected for weeks. He could only dimly make out what was going on in the water below. Kohai's left wrist was broken and his skin was punctured by thorns, but his vision was unaffected. Whatever was visible of the fate of his school and his schoolmates, he saw it. He would never talk publicly about it. Only later would the full scale of the tragedy at Okawa Elementary School become clear. 
The school had 108 children. Of the 78 who were there at the moment of the tsunami, 74 of them and 10 out of the 11 teachers had died. Later, many of the children's parents were tormented by self-reproach for not rushing to the school to collect them. But far from being neglectful or lazy, they had followed the course of action that, in every other circumstance, would have been most likely to secure their safety and survival. Nowhere in Japan are precautions against natural disaster more robust than in state schools. On the 11th of March 2011, out of 18,000 people killed by the earthquake and tsunami in Japan, only 75 were children in the care of their teachers. All but one were at Okawa Elementary School. Katsura Sato's daughter, Mizuho, was one of the children killed at Okawa. After the cremation, well, I'm usually healthy, but I became ill, Katsura said. I couldn't get up. I stayed in bed for three days, and I started thinking and thinking, and I became very suspicious about the circumstances in which we lost our daughter. I knew that this was a great natural disaster, and I assumed at the beginning that there must have been many other cases like this, other schools where the same thing happened. But why did I never hear of them? In the nearby villages along the river, as they began to catch their breath in the weeks following the disaster, other parents were asking the same question. The revelation of the truth about what had happened was itself the opposite of a tsunami. There was no grand climax, no crashing wave or rumbling of the earth. The facts came out in trickles and drips, some falling naturally, some squeezed out by wringing hands. The stray words of a surviving child revealing an unrecognised failure a document exposing contradictions in the official account. The official account itself, wobbling and bending. Every few months, there was a new explanatory meeting at which the bureaucrats of the Ishinomaki Education Board submitted themselves to the anger of the parents. Reluctantly and with trepidation, people came forward to tell their stories. The imperviousness of the city officials, their refusal to muster a human response to the grief of the families, seemed at the beginning to be a collective failure of character and of leadership. But as time passed, the parents began to suspect another motivation, an obsession with avoiding anything that could be taken as an admission of liability. The metallic tang of loyally advice lingered around many of the bureaucrats' utterances. They were happy to express grief and condolence, and willing to abase themselves in general terms for their unworthiness. But to acknowledge specific negligence on the part of individuals or systematic institutional failure, that was a step no one would take. 23 months after the tsunami, the Ishinomaki city government announced the establishment of something called the Okawa Elementary School Incident Verification Committee, which would spend a year reviewing documents and conducting interviews. Its findings were published in a 200-page report in February 2014. The committee's mission, verification, turned out to have specific and limited scope, to establish the facts and causes of what had happened, but by no means to assign personal responsibility. It concluded that the deaths arose because the evacuation of the playground was delayed and because the children and teachers eventually fled towards the tsunami, not away from it. The report said that the school, the Board of Education and the city government were inadequately prepared for such a natural disaster. The municipal hazard map which indicated areas of coast vulnerable to tsunami, did not include Kamaya. The possibility of a tsunami was not considered in compiling the school's disaster manual, and there were no tsunami evacuation drills. No one in the municipal government had checked on the preparations taken by the school. 
Teachers at the school, the report stated, were psychologically unable to accept that they were facing imminent danger. If any one of these failures had not occurred, the committee concluded, the tragedy could have been avoided. The most controversial aspects of the case, such as the silencing of the boys who wanted to run to the hill, were ignored or skated over. To the parents, the committee's conclusions were no more than an expensive restatement of what had been obvious for more than two years. The true purpose of the exercise, they concluded, was to shut down disagreement about the tragedy by commissioning independent experts to produce a tepid report, which articulated mild criticisms while sparing the careers and reputations of the guilty. The committee's report came out almost three years after the tsunami. The day before the anniversary, on the 10th of March 2014, came a startling piece of news. The families of 23 children who had died at Okawa were suing the city of Ishinomaki and Miyagi Prefecture in the Sendai District Court. They accused them of negligence and demanded compensation for each of the lives lost. It was two years and 364 days since the disaster the very last moment that it was legally possible to file a case. It was the move they had secretly been planning all along. In Japanese justice, nothing happens quickly. It was not until April 2016 that witnesses appeared to give evidence in the case against Ishinomaki City and Miyagi Prefecture, the co-defendants in the case. The plaintiff's claim was that the city, in the person of the teachers at Okawa Elementary School, had been guilty of negligence in failing to protect the children in its care. The case centred on two questions. Could the teachers have foreseen the coming of the tsunami? And if so, could they have saved the children from it? The Sendai District Court delivered its verdict on the 26th of October 2016. I took the bullet train up that morning from Tokyo. It was a warm, piercingly bright day. Five and a half years had passed since the tsunami, and there was no obvious sign that it had ever taken place. The town and cities of Tohoku were humming with the money that was being injected into the region for its reconstruction. 100,000 people still lived in metal houses, but these upsetting places were tucked away out of sight of the casual visitor. None of the towns destroyed by the wave had been rebuilt, but they had been scoured completely of rubble. Coarse, tussocky grass had overgrown the coastal strip, and those ruins that poked through it looked more like neglected archaeological sites than places of continuing pain and despair. In front of the Sendai courthouse, reporters and photographers were milling lazily. A ripple of animation passed through them at the arrival of a procession, slowly making its way through the sunshine. It was the plaintiffs, the mothers and fathers of the Okawa children, walking along the pavement three abreast. They wore black. Several carried framed photographs of their sons and daughters. The three men at the front held a wide banner. Around its margins were the faces of the 23 children named in the case, photographed at home, at school, or playing outside, laughing, smiling, or solemn. In the centre was a sentence of Japanese, the characters carefully hand-painted with an inkbrush. We did what our teachers told us. The doors of the courtroom were opened, and everyone took their places. I looked across at the black-clad parents. How many hours I had spent talking to them over the years, in conversations filled with intense and sometimes unbearable detail. They had spoken to me about each stage of the lives of their children, in childhood, infancy, even in gestation. Grief was in their noses like a stench, 
It was the first thing they thought of when they woke in the morning, and the last thing in their minds as they went to sleep at night. They remembered the school and the community of families of which it was the focus. They described the disaster and its unfolding, the blows of realisation that followed, and the asphyxia of loss and of survival. A door opened noiselessly, and all at once the three judges, a young woman and two middle-aged men, were seated in their black gowns. The judge in the centre began speaking, quickly, quietly, and without inflection. The Japanese he used, formal and legalistic, was beyond my grasp, so I focused instead on the faces of the listening parents. There, surely, I would immediately be able to read the verdict in their anger or jubilation. The faces looked intently at the judge. They frowned in concentration. Their features were blank and expressionless. And then, as suddenly as it began, it was all over, and the occupants of the court were standing up and filing out. The parents were on their feet too. They exchanged no words or glances. They looked grave and even grim. And yet, towards the end, I thought I had been able to follow part of the judge's ruling, the part when he seemed to be ordering the defendants to pay what sounded like a very large sum of money. I stepped out into the corridor where the Japanese reporters were huddled, comparing notes. I had not misunderstood. The Okawa parents had won their case. They had been awarded more than £11 million. All their children were still dead. For more Guardian long reads in text and a selection in audio, go to theguardian.com forward slash long read or find us on SoundCloud at soundcloud forward slash theguardianlongread. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen.